Well, we are doing a, a short series where I'm revisiting uh, Psalms I preached seven or eight years ago. And in a certain sense, this is uh, an exercise for my personal benefit as I uh, evaluate where I was uh, nearly a decade ago and how I've uh, grown or changed uh, since that time. And even though it's the same Psalm, uh, I invariably wind up writing a, a whole new uh, sermon because I look at what I wrote and kind of cringe and think, how did they sit through this? Uh, uh, not that the, uh, as they would say, exegesis was bad, but maybe some of the, the, the other uh, could use a little bit of work. And of, of course, that's certainly uh, true this week. Well, this week we're looking at Psalm 2 which is a messianic psalm. And the messianic psalms get their name because they reference and they look forward to the Messiah, the anointed one, or as they uh, say it in the Greek, the Christ. That's, there's actually you know, quite a few messianic figures in the Old Testament, with David being one of the most important ones, but he's not the only one. There are a number of messiahs in the Old Testament, but even so, figures like David are types of messiahs. That is, they give us the pattern and the shape to the Messiah to come, which in turn looks, it looks forward to and it finds its fulfillment as the New Testament claims in Jesus. So Psalm 2 is, is one of the most quoted Psalms uh, in the New Testament and it's directly connected to Jesus in places like Acts 4 and Hebrews 1, though it's also quoted in places like Revelation 12 and 19 as well. So Psalm 2, let me read it for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the, of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quick, quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ancient word about your Messiah and what you would do and will do through him. We thank you for this time we have together to meditate on this word, and we pray your spirit would be amongst us, that we might see Jesus and we might grow in our love for him and understand more and more just how much he loves us. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. All right, verse 1 asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And that term nations here, don't think of this as kind of the modern nation state as we tend to think of it, but think of it more in terms of people group, like say the Philistines or the Assyrians. And it, and it harkens back to passages like 
Deuteronomy 32. This isn't the only one, but it, and to my mind, it harkens back to Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 8 through 9, where Moses interprets Genesis 11 and 12. And here's what he writes in interpreting those two passages of Scripture. He writes, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So Genesis 11, if you'll remember, is the scene where humanity united in its rebellion against God, sought to build its own holy mountain, its own uh, man-made Eden. That's what the Tower of Babel, Babel is. And they do this in order to worship itself. So humanity was wholeheartedly following after the lie of Satan. And, and God, in turn, stopped their efforts and handed them over to their sinful desires in order to be ruled by fallen spiritual beings. That is, as Moses calls them, the sons of God. So if the people at Babel would not be ruled by God, they would be ruled by fallen spiritual beings, or what Moses again calls the sons of God, or what we typically think of as Satan and his demons. That's, as he says there, the nation's inheritance like the prodigal son and what he inherited. And God gave them over to what they wanted. For example, this is exactly what is in view in the book of Exodus with Egypt and its worship of a multitude of gods. Those were fallen spiritual beings. Egypt, in turn, persecuted Israel, you know, God's anointed son, and refused to turn to the true God. And out of that judgment at Babel, in Genesis 11, God chose Abraham for himself. That's Genesis 12. And he does this in order to make Abraham into a mighty nation. And through him, God would bring the exiled nations back to himself. So Israel was God's portion. Israel was God's inheritance. So verse 1 assumes this this of our passage assumes this fracturing of humanity between Israel and the nations. Even as later in the psalm, it also assumes the promise to redeem the exiled nations. Verse 2 sees the kings of the earth united in their rejection of God, like at Babel, and in their rejection of God's anointed king, his Messiah. So these kings if you know anything about humanity, they, they cannot agree on much, but they can agree on this. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is, we refuse to be ruled by this God and his Messiah. And this, of course, is the history of the world, and we can clearly see it with the history of Israel's neighbors, whether it was Egypt, of course, or the Canaanites, or the Assyrians, or whoever. But Israel became like the nations too, most acutely with her rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. So the reason, as, as the Bible sees it, that humanity is divided into various people groups all over the world that in turn worship various gods, I mean thousands and thousands of different gods, goes all the way back to Babel, if not really to Genesis 3. So whether we're speaking of a group as large, for example, as the Assyrian Empire, or as small as an individual, 
within that empire, what every human shares is the conviction that we don't want God to rule over us. Or, as it is expressed in our own times, we don't want God to impose or infringe on what we think is our right to define ourselves however we want. Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to listen to the serpent than the true God. Better to build utopia in our own image like our forefathers did at Babel than to submit to God's parameters. And by the way, that utopian project has been constantly on offer throughout every generation of all of humanity. So you can see that with the Persian Empire, for example, in there what they thought was bringing enlightenment to the world. You can see that with wokeism today. You could see that with scientism today. That's what Star Trek is about. You could see that with certain versions of Christian nationalism, too. Babel is alive and well. So when people think they are gaining freedom by bursting the bonds and cords that bind them to God, in reality, they've substituted one set of bonds for another. They chose false gods over the true one, or as, as Stanley Fish put it, freedom is just another word for constraint. It's just a different constraint. No one is free like modern people think they are. It's a myth. It is a myth. Everyone is constrained. Everyone is bound to something or someone. Everyone worships. No exceptions. It's why what Jesus offers in the gospel is not freedom. At least it's not freedom as the world defines freedom. No, he offers a bond. He offers a yoke. Here's Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hear that. Find rest by being bound to me. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it never has in mind freedom to live however we want. Salvation always has in mind the restoration of our relationship to God, which, like marriage, involves being bound to him. So just consider one of the most beloved psalms of the Bible, Psalm 23. It is entirely entirely about being bound and ruled by God. Listen to it. The Lord is my shepherd, not my equal. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now listen to this next part because it, it's going to matter here in a few moments with our own psalm today. Your rod and your staff, that's his rule. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. That's a Messiah-like thing. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell 
in my own house on my own terms. No, in the house of the Lord forever. So this psalm is the antithesis, the exact opposite of what the world thinks it wants and what it thinks is true. If you want life and comfort and goodness, it is not found apart from God's rule. It's not found in breaking free from him. It's found in being bound to him. So to think I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul is not merely the height of arrogance, though it is. It's the height of foolishness. It's just foolishness. Now, verses four through six is God's response to the kings of the earth. He's looked into the depth of their hearts. He knows their thoughts. And here's what he says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Derek Kidner, the the great Old Testament um, commentator, describes this passage as God's quiet sovereignty. You know, so often we think uh, God does not see or does not actually rule. We, we look at our, our daily experience or, or, or just local or even world events and we think, where is God? Or worse, as we saw last week, there is no God. And remember, to think there is no God is not so much like modern atheism, though there's that, as, as it is to think that, that God does not see, that he's, he's, he's not present or acting, or, or most commonly for us, we take as given that reality is just what my eyes take in. And by the way, modern people are unique. And I should say modern Western people over the last 200 years are unique in human history in thinking that. We are the aberration. We are the aberration. That we think reality is just what my eyes take in. And so really, it's just us, unless we're in a crisis, and we don't give God another thought. So once we've, we've done that daily quiet time, as I mentioned earlier, we're on our own. We're on our own. So despite our feelings or experience of him, God is not absent, and he sees into the depths of every heart, king and peasant alike. And like with his own son's arrest and trial and crucifixion, he watches Jews and Gentiles conspire together against his Messiah, and he laughs. But it's not a happy laugh. It's sardonic. It's derisive. It's like he's saying, are you serious? Do you really think your little plan, your little tower building, your little conspiracy to crucify my son is going to accomplish what you think it will? Do you really think you can undo or destroy my creation or stop my plans for the world or make this world as you would have it? See, the temptation is to overplay the power of humanity, especially kings or those with power or the experts or those with money or whoever it may be, and to instead underplay God's authority and power. And like Israel among the nations, we see the strength of the Babylonians or the Persians, and we we fear them. Or like Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6, we are blinded by what's right in front of us, the tyranny of the moment it has us. 
And we cannot see just how overpowering our God and his, his armies truly are. So, for example, we've been living through uh, arguably one of the strangest and most pol- polarizing decades of the last 50 years. This is one of those things that, that made it over from my sermon seven years ago. That line. Now think about what's happened over the last seven years. We are living through arguably one of the strangest and most polarizing decades of the last 50 years. Not that the polarization or, or the violence is anything new. I mean, this isn't exactly as bad as, say, the cultural revolutions of communist China and Russia. I mean, come on. Even so, things are not good, and I think we all, we all recognize that. So, for example, both, both political parties, both political parties think in zero-sum terms. Both sides think that if the opposition comes to power, it will be the end of democracy in this country as we know it. Both sides say that, and maybe they're right. Maybe not. The Christian difference is not to give in to panic and fear like Israel so often did, turning to foreign powers and foreign gods for protection, and even Solomon did this. It's to trust that this world belongs to God, and whether we live or we die, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will trust that our God reigns and we belong to him. And by the way, they made that confession staring into a fire in front of the most powerful person on the planet at the time. But think of it another way. Have you ever noticed as you're reading through Paul's letters how little concern Paul shows for who the Roman emperor of his day was? He never mentions him by name. And it's not like he didn't know. And it's not like uh, Paul was apolitical or just hyper-spiritual or unaware of the world around him. No, that dude was stoned outside city gates. He's pretty aware of his surroundings. But it's almost like Paul, by his silence, much like how Moses never names the Pharaoh in Exodus, Paul seems to be making a statement about human authority. Not that human power uh, does not matter or that we should not be engaged in our communities and nations. We should. Daniel, for example, was actively involved in the court of Babylon, the most powerful court in the world at that time, and it nearly led to his death on multiple occasions. Now, the question is, who do we believe has ultimate authority? Who really is the master of my fate and the captain of my soul? See, God laughs at the foolishness of human hubris. He is the quiet sovereign. He has no need to flex on TV or send his armies goose-stepping through Jerusalem. You know, even so, one day he will speak to the world's powers in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, and he will do so through the king, his king, his anointed that he has set up on Zion on his holy hill. Well, verses 7 through 9 say this. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and this is the Messiah speaking, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the claim of the New Testament 
and of course I think this is right, is that Jesus is this authoritative son. He is the king who has been given dominion over all things. He's the son of man of Daniel 7 and the lion of Judah of Revelation 5. And at Jesus' baptism, this is the pronouncement of God upon Jesus, that Jesus is his beloved son. The same pronouncement was made again at his transfiguration. After Jesus was resurrected, this is what Jesus himself uh, claims, that he is the true king and has been given all authority over the heavens and the earth. And when he says all, he means all. Not merely spiritual, as if there's anything merely about spiritual. All authority over the heavens and the earth. So when Psalm 2 says, the nations are your heritage and the ends of the earth are your possession... This is the promise made to Abraham that God would redeem the exiled nations, think again back to Babylon, the exiled nations through his offspring. And we see that promise begin to be fulfilled during Jesus' ministry, and it comes to fruition with Pentecost, when the nations start to be pulled back to Jerusalem. And of course, it is continuing to be fulfilled today in the billions the billions. Remember, in the previous verses, God promised to bring his wrath and fury against those who reject his rule. It's like he, he did through Israel against Canaan. I shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So on the one hand, this is what's so often missed by modern readers of the Bible. God patiently, I mean patiently, endures with the wicked but if they will not turn, like with Egypt, who he was incredibly patient with, he does eventually bring judgment and justice. But on the other hand, God has never been content with Israel alone as his inheritance. He wants the whole world because he made it, including every exiled nation. So Israel and his Messiah is the means by which he is promised to undo the effects of sin and death, the effects of Babel, and to bring the world to himself. Here we sit. Here we sit. And even at the Exodus, it wasn't merely Israel that left Egypt. It was a mixed community of Jew and Gentile together, following after God, even as Pharaoh, who was set against God and would not change, was destroyed. That's the picture. The world belongs to God, every last inch of it. And those who want his rule, who want to be part of his people, who can see his graciousness and his kindness, he will rule them as a gentle shepherd. His rod and his staff bring comfort and rest and life. For those who reject his rule, that same rod will be an iron hammer that shatters them like pottery. Either way, the modern myth of freedom from any and all constraints is not an option because, again, it's a myth. God will direct us in the way he would have us to go, a way of life with him as he created us to be, or we can choose life apart from him and death, and he will give it to us. Clearly, then, the Bible presents a multifaceted picture of the Messiah. He is not just a gentle shepherd. And he's not just the coming king who destroys his enemies. He's both. So he's both slow to anger, abounding in steadfast loving kindness, and he will by no means let the wicked off the hook. That's Exodus 34. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So it's easy to tilt in one direction or the other and fall into false pictures of who Jesus actually is. So for example, it's easy to make a caricature of Jesus that presents him as a vengeful king who is neither gracious nor merciful and who demands perfection and obedience or else you're done. You know, go to church and the devil will get you. That's that picture. It's also easy to make Jesus out to be a fluffy shepherd who is here to confirm you in your desires and give you a wonderful life, however you see fit. No, the shepherd who gave his life for his people, whose rod and staff comforts them, is also the Lion of Judah, who will crush the wicked with his iron rod and praise God for it. Well, the psalm ends with an appeal to the kings of the earth, the very ones who set themselves against God. And the appeal is for them to be wise, and to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice, to worship him with trembling. This is why we pray for all our leaders, that they may have this. And like with the Proverbs, it's an appeal to find wisdom and life in God before it is too late. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, because his wrath is quickly kindled. And this really shows, again, just how kind and gracious and patient God is and why Ezekiel repeatedly says that God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. So when Osama bin Laden went down, God was not high-fying Michael and saying, look at that, y'all. He took no joy in that. None. Even with, with Babel, instead of outright destroying humanity for their wickedness like he did in Noah's day, which he had every right to do, by the way. He instead gave them time, even as he gave them over to their sinful desires. And as Paul mentions, they were not without a witness about him. They knew. And they said, no thanks. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So even as God has promised that he will bring justice, he appeals to humanity to turn to him and find life instead, especially those who are in authority. So as the king's heart goes, so goes the heart of his people. But it's worth considering with these last minute or so. It's worth considering that like the nations or like we saw last week with Psalm 14, even as his people, even as Christians, we tend to put God off. You know, I tend to assume that there's, there's always going to be time. That there is a long time until I die until, or until I need to start addressing issues in my life. I have, I have time until I really need to deal with whatever sin. I have lots of time left with my children so I can give myself over to my, my phone or my hobbies. I can keep on doing what I've been doing and things will most likely be fine for the foreseeable future. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Your life may be required of you before you're ready. The sin may surface in ways that you did not expect. You may receive a diagnosis you didn't see coming. You will blink and your children will be out of the house and you'll start wondering if Cat Stevens, the cat in the cradle, was a prophecy about your life. Don't put off God and his Messiah. He matters far more than anything else in your life. 
You know, the same gracious call to the kings set against God is extended to us, his people. Take the yoke that God is offering because it's good and it's life-giving. Take the road that he wants to lead you down. You don't know where it's going to go. Of course you don't, but he does. Do not refuse his rule and don't go looking to burst his bonds. The way of the prodigal is not the way to life. He's the good shepherd, and he loves you dearly. He loves you dearly. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I don't know if it gets any better than when David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You are the God who offers rest and your love. May we respond to your staff and to your rod. May we find your bonds not to be burdensome, but to be good because they are life-giving. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.